The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, why on earth would we choose to walk through the book of Acts? Well, reason number one is because it's awesome. The book of Acts is awesome. That's sufficient reason to walk through the book of Acts. It is really cool. What, what, I, what I really love is going to these pages and seeing, like, these are our people. This is our church. This is our confession. This is the stuff that we do. This is the stuff that they were doing 2,000 years ago, and I love it. But in addition to that, one of the things that you see in the book of Acts is this inevitable advance of the kingdom. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent out his spirit, and there has been this just dynamic, kind of explosive advance of the story of Jesus, the power of his spirit, and making the church. And what we want to be about as a church is that same thing, is, seeing the, is, is being motivated by the spirit, being sensitive to the leading of the spirit as the spirit uh, casts us and sends us to go make Christ known in the places that he commissions us. If you've been around our church Hopefully, you've got, kind of gotten that sense that that's what we're about. That's what we want to be about is making Jesus known. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that there is no shortage of those kind of stories in the book of Acts. Maybe if you've grown up in church or you're familiar with the Bible, you think of stories like Paul going on a missionary journey or Peter preaching to the masses. You think of the shipwrecks and the strange visions and the divine endorsement of bacon that the Lord gives us. And that's Josh Cut, by the way. I saw this morning the background on his phone is bacon. It's, it's perfect. Thanks to the new covenant and the work of Jesus to make that a reality. It's for you, Josh. Now, I think about when I was a teenager, the very first DVD that I bought, which maybe DVDs used to watch movies on these little discs called DVDs, Tyler. Um, the first DVD that I bought was Saving Private Ryan. Anybody seen the film, Saving Private Ryan? It's like a top five movie ever. It's brilliant. It's so good. Love Saving Private Ryan. Now, I probably watched through Saving Private Ryan in its totality like once. But I'll tell you what I did all the time was I would go back to the fight scenes and I would watch those over and over and over. You have the awesome storming of the beach and D-Day scene. You have the awesome scene at the end of the, of the film when they're in the little French village. I would watch these fight scenes over and over again. That was, to me, that was the good stuff. That was the juicy stuff. That was the parts that were exciting and full of action and, and, and violence and probably an unhealthy kind of fixation on what was happening in those scenes. Now, sometimes we can think about the book of Acts and we can think about the action scenes. We can think about the shipwrecks and the strange visions and the giving of pork and the sermons and the missionary journeys. But actually, there's a lot of nuggets and goodness in Acts and these stories that kind of sit between the action scenes, we might say. It has a lot to say about not just advancing the gospel, but, but about being the body of Christ. Not just the exciting gathering from all tribes, tongues, and nations, but being those who have been gathered from the different tribes, tongues, and nations, and learning to walk in the unity of the risen Lord Jesus. Today is one such passage. What I think is a really beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing, has done, and, and is doing presently in his power to do it. That's what a passage is about today. We'll see a, maybe a framework we can use to, as we walk through this passage is grace, gladness, and generosity. Grace, gladness, generosity. Let's look again at Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 
speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, last uh, two Sundays ago, when we looked at this passage, we looked at just these verses. And what we saw was how unbelievable it was that the kingdom and the gospel actually advances because of persecution. That the enemy's attempts to snuff out the Christian movement actually further aided the advance of the Christian movement. That's how strong Jesus is, is he, he flexes over his enemies by making their efforts to stop him part of his plan. The gospel advances because of the persecution of Stephen. And that the hand of the Lord is with these folks, these normal, no-name, average people who the Lord uses to do the advancing. We said that it gives us confidence as we read this passage and we think about our very normal, kind of no-name lives, how, how Jesus uses that to do the advancing. And what we saw was that this is no longer just a regional movement. This is no longer a movement that's limited to Jerusalem and Judea and even Samaria. It has now gone as far north as Antioch. Here's a map. Hopefully you guys can see that. I know it's kind of small for the people in the back, but there's a big red arrow that hopefully you can see from back there. It shows the gospel traveling 450 miles up the coast, up to what is in modern-day Turkey, up to the city of Antioch. 450 miles is a long road trip, you know, when you're in your suburban, but it's especially a long road trip, you know, pre-suburbans, right? It's amazing that the gospel has made its way 450 miles north, all the way up to the city of Antioch. And it's not just a regional movement, it's also not just a Jewish movement any longer. Because we're told that those who went about traveling or were scattered because of the persecution began to tell the Greeks the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the risen Lord of all people groups, not just the Jews. He is the king over all peoples, all nations. What's happened here is that the doors have been completely blown wide open. The gospel is advancing. And so naturally, the church in Jerusalem where all of this started, where it all got kick-started, hears about this movement of the gospel to the Greeks, and they hear that it's taken root, and it makes them really curious. Verse 22. The report of this, that is to say, the great number who believed and turned to the Lord from the Hellenists, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the church in Jerusalem is kind of the mother church. It's the church of the apostles. It's where the spirit fell initially. It's where it all began. So it's natural that the report would make its way back to the people in the church of Jerusalem. And you have to imagine their shock. Like, they know something special has happened, but it takes it to another level when they hear that this is happening almost 500 miles north of us. They say, you mean the people in Antioch? The Greeks are believing in Jesus and the spirit has fallen on them? as well, just like it did us. So understandably, they find somebody who has some experience speaking Greek, maybe experience from being, you know, from among those people, someone like Barnabas, who's from um, Cyprus, he's fluent in Greek. They send Barnabas to go do some reconnaissance. Or Barnabas, we want you to go investigate this. We're hearing about this, we're excited and encouraged about the potential of what this might mean. Go double check and make sure that this is for real, because As we've seen in Acts, and as we know in our time, there are hucksters and false teachers and people who claim the name of Jesus, and discernment is required, and so they send Barnabas to go do some investigating. Now, this is actually the third appearance of Barnabas in the book of Acts. And Barnabas, if you could summarize what Luke says about Barnabas, it's this. Barnabas, what a guy. What a guy. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we're told that his uh, his name means son of encouragement. 
Luke wants us to see him very much being a bridge builder, kind of an encourager type person in Acts. We're first introduced to Barnabas when he sells property for the sake of brothers and sisters in Jesus. And he's contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira, who the Lord judges for their uh, lying to the Holy Spirit. Barnabas again appears in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. This is after Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle, is dramatically converted on his way to Damascus. Paul is literally on the hunt for Christians. He is this ferocious ravager of Jesus' church. Jesus interrupts him and flexes on him and inverts all of that and turns it towards a, a ferocious builder of churches. By the way, I heard this week that Saul is a tent maker in Acts. But he's also a tent maker, a tabernacle maker in Acts. Anyway, we'll get there. When we, we'll get there later. After Paul becomes this ferocious you know, defender of the gospel and evangelist, ironically, his former brothers-in-arms conspire to kill him. And so in Acts chapter 9, Saul goes to try and join the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem is understandably very skeptical about this. You know, is he, is he trying to infiltrate us from the inside? What's happening here? And we're told that Barnabas is the one who goes to bat for Saul. It says, no, this guy is for real. The Lord did indeed save him, and the Lord Jesus himself has commissioned Saul to this ministry. Let's, let's embrace him. We see Barnabas being a bridge builder. And so once again, he appears in the narrative to do very Barnabasy things. Verse 23. When Barnabas came, when he, when he arrived at the church at Antioch, and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. When Barnabas arrived and saw the grace of God at work in the church at Antioch, he was glad. When he saw the Lord's grace at work in them, when he saw that this was for real, that the Spirit had descended, that they had received the gospel of Jesus, he was glad. And I love that because... What this means is Barnabas traveled up to Antioch, again, 450 miles, and realized, wait a second, the same grace that is at work in you is the same grace that is at work in me, a Greek-speaking Jew. I traveled up north and met strangers, Gentiles, very much not connected to me, very much not related to me in any way, but I see that they too have received the Spirit and have received the same grace of God that I've received. He traveled up the coast to discover he had brothers there. So maybe we can pause for a second and just ask ourselves this question. How do we create unity? How do we create unity? Is it something that the elders can dream up in our little elder meetings, kind of mastermind, perfect, facilitate unity? Is it, is it something that you can do? Is it something that our, our, it, we do community groups to create unity? Do we do age-specific kind of niche ministries to create unity? Do we have team-building exercises and books and seminars to create unity? You know what I think this passage tells us is we don't create unity. We discover unity. Christian unity is first this realization. It's the same realization that Barnabas had. Wait a second. The same grace of God at work in you is the same grace of God at work in me. God is the one who has given it. God has made us brothers. God has made us sisters. It doesn't matter our age differences or skin colors or church experiences or favorite music or 
how we make our barbecue and barbecue sauce, what our hobbies are, or any of that. It is the same grace, the same family. We don't will it, we don't plan it, we don't make it, we find it. We don't create unity, we discover unity. We look around, we realize, wait a second, you have been given the same grace that I have been given. That makes you my brother. Everything else falls away. You are my brother, you are my sister. And it's not just a recognition of grace, it's like Barnabas, it's a grace that's met with gladness. There's grace at work in you and I am here for it. I am glad to see God's work in your life and and I'm glad that that means that you and I are siblings and every other thing that separates us is negligible. I am glad that you've been given the same grace that I've been given and that means we are brothers and sisters. Let let me ask this for a second. Do we even have the capacity to see the grace of God at work in the lives of others and be glad about it. Can we be glad when we see God's grace at work in brothers and sisters? You've probably seen at some point this week or the last week uh, the stories coming out of Asbury. Methodist school apparently being moved by the Holy Spirit. There's a chapel service that apparently just won't quit. It won't relent. It's characterized by prayer and repentance and worship. I think we're two weeks deep at this point in what's going on at Asbury. And the first po- impulse of many of us is to, is to poo-poo that. Now, I'm not giving Ridgewood's, you know, official statement on this or whatever. I have no idea. We won't have any idea probably for some time. But I just couldn't help but wonder if our first impulse couldn't just be gladness for the grace of God that's been given to brothers and sisters somewhere else. Can can we be like Barnabas and rejoice where the Lord is at work? I think of Gamaliel's words from earlier in the book of Acts. It says, hey, listen. Seems like the Lord is doing something here. Time will tell, and you better be careful not to oppose it because you might find yourself being opposed to the work of God. Can we, can, we, can we just look and be glad what the Lord seems to be doing? Can we look around at each other and say, Jesus saved you? He saved me. You, you follow Christ? I follow Christ. We can say to each other, I see you loving Jesus, and I'm really glad about that. I see you growing into the likeness of Jesus And I love it, and I'm here for it, and I'm glad for it. I hear you singing beside me. I see you sharing the bread and juice that I'm drinking and eating, and I'm glad. I see your perseverance through hardship. I see your joy in Jesus, and man, that gets my gears going in the best kind of way. I'm glad for that. I see your giftedness and mercy, hospitality, evangelism. I see the Lord working out the fruit of righteousness in your life. I see the Lord's grace in you, and I am glad. Or are we only feel, filled with resentment? You know, I can think of times in my life where, and I'm, I'm sick over this, if I'm honest, I can think of times in my life where the Lord was obviously doing work in people's life, and I didn't like it. It was like, I, I like being saved, and I like being grown, and I like being used by the Lord, but I don't like you, and I don't like that the Lord has chosen to do that with you or your kind. It irritates me. I mean, I remember... When I was in, in my high school years, I remember there was, it seemed like the Lord was working in some of my peers, and he was saving them and working in their lives. And I remember thinking, church is my thing. You, I don't want you to have the things that I have as punishment because I was excluded for these things, and I was kind of kept out of the circles that I wanted to be a part of because of these things. And I don't want you to receive what I've had. It's like how sick and unhealthy is that, that I can't be glad for God's grace and even my enemies. Envy and resentment are nasty, man. But spiritual envy, envy is doubly so. Can we see the grace of God at work in others and be glad 
like Barnabas. Barnabas sees these Gentiles receiving the Spirit. It's the same grace of God he's been given. And instead of bitterness or resentment, he's glad. Verse 23. So he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we're told that Barnabas actually posts up with these guys and he spends time with them, teaching them about Jesus. He teaches them to hold fast, to stay faithful to Jesus, to keep on believing on Jesus and be faithful and following after him. And then Luke tells us, because Barnabas, what a guy, right? He does this because he's a good man. He's like, Barnabas is a good dude. He's, he's full of the Holy Spirit and faith and the Lord used him. It's almost like Barnabas is being held out to us as an example to follow. But then in verse 25, we have the return of another character. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, I love what happens here. The book of Acts is oftentimes like... um, it's, it's almost like a, uh, your favorite TV show where characters kind of come in and out and you have side characters and then these side characters kind of become surprisingly some of the main characters in the narrative. We're told here that Saul makes a reappearance and it's because Barnabas goes and gets Saul from his hometown. Here's another map for us just to help us make sense of what's happening here. So Barnabas travels from Jerusalem up to Antioch. He sees what the Lord's doing. He spends some time there. The Lord blesses his, his, his ministry there and then Barnabas thinks, Oh man, I got a guy who needs some reps, who the Lord has called into ministry. He needs some coaching and some reps. What if I went and got this? He's not that far from here. What if I went and got him and brought him here and allowed him to do some ministry here? I'm told that's exactly what takes place. He bounces up to, uh, to, to Tarsus, goes and gets Saul, and brings him back with him, back down to Antioch. And it says that they spend a whole year together meeting with the, with the church and teaching a great many people. Talk about spiritual envy. Wouldn't that have been awesome to just to be present for that, to be present for the teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul as he was hashing out, you know, what would be the book of Romans, hashing that out for the people at Antioch, working on what would be the content of Colossians. You know, you have a front row seat to him working that out. And then Luke gives us this nugget at the end of verse 26. He says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, there's been several other names that have been used to describe believers at this point in the book. These names matter and these designations matter. We've been told a few times that they are the disciples. We've been told a few times that they are the brothers. In a few instances, they're called followers of the way, being the way of Jesus, the patterning themselves after the lifestyle of Jesus. It's even uh, the, the phrase, or, or the word rather, ecclesia, which we translate as church, is used to describe the Christians up to this point. But now for the very first time, they are called Christians. And the reason behind that isn't actually entirely clear. There's some who seem to think that this was initially a negative thing, that it was like they, they went about talking about Jesus so much that it was a, a way to kind of to, to pick on the Christians. You know, you're so about Jesus and you like talking about Jesus. You're just a bunch of little Christs, aren't you? Little, little Christlets, Christians. But I actually think that something deeply fr- profound here is taking place. About 15 or 20 years after these events, Paul writes a letter to a group of Christians in Ephesus. So if, if this is Antioch, Ephesus is all the way over on this side of Turkey, about 500 miles away from there. And this is what he writes. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. 
Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached, uh, preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that in Christ, those who are far off and those who are near, Gentiles and Jews have been brought together as what? One new man. Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, inhabitants of this city, inhabitants of that city, members from this people group, members from that people group, but now they're Christians. They make up the body of Christ. I think what's happening here in Luke, uh, Acts Chapter 11, verse 26, is Luke is telling us, now we have reached the point where this has gone beyond a regional or an ethnic thing, and it is now one new man in Christ. It's Christians. And so church, that is true of us, objectively. You know, think about this room. I mean, we have people from all over the United States, all over the map, with all sorts of quirks and interests and cultures, and I don't know why this keeps coming to mind, but different tastes and barbecue sauce. But we've been made one new man in Jesus. One new man in Jesus. All of those things are peripheral. All of these things are negligible. We are one new man in Jesus. That is our identity, and that is the basis of our relationships with one another. It doesn't matter how you feel about the new Star Wars show. It doesn't matter what your favorite movies are. It doesn't matter what your favorite author is. What matters is that we are one new man in Christ. This is true of this church, and it's true of our sister churches. Our sister churches who who praise the name of Jesus and who preach the gospel. Black, Hispanic, Slavic, Korean, Indian, Chinese. These are our brothers and sisters. We are one new man in Jesus. We are Christians before we are anything else. We belong to Christ. And the reason is that the gospel of Jesus is the great unifier. It's that all of us, regardless of our tastes, need grace. That's the, the deeply offensive nature of the gospel is that all of us require grace. All of us. doesn't matter how gifted or smart or intelligent, how many degrees we have. None of that matters. We need grace. That's true for each of us. And the good news of the gospel is that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been flattened before Jesus. And he becomes our peace. 
He reconciles us both to God and to one another in one body through the cross. Then he grants all people, all of his people, access in one spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but citizens with the saints and members of the household of God together. Like Barnabas and Saul and these Christians, that unity that we have together is because we see God's grace at work in one another. Because you have found salvation in Jesus too, just like me. That means we are one new man in Christ. That means we're Christians. That means we're brothers. And we're glad. But I love how this story continues to progress. Verse 27. The unity isn't just expressed in glad recognition, but it gets down to brass tacks. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So prophets had made their way traveling. Seems like one of, the, one of the gifts of the Spirit at this time was the gift of prophets, like the individual Agabus here, verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So Agabus is this prophet. He's traveling. He's, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, and he announces to the church at Antioch, there's coming a famine, a food shortage down south, down in Judea. And then Luke gives us this aside when he says this took place in the days of Claudius to say, look it up, it's recorded, and it, and it is. This famine actually took place. Agabus comes and he tells them about this need. The Christians down south are about to be affected by a serious food shortage. And then watch this, and, and watch the, the language here, verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the Disciples? So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the other church down the road, to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The disciples, hearing of this famine that was going to soon afflict their brothers and sisters down south, They determine, everyone according to what they could afford, they take up an offering and they send it to the church in Jerusalem. They behave in a way that is consistent with the discovery that has been made. You belong to Christ, I belong to Christ, therefore your burdens, your needs, your hurts are my burdens, needs, and hurts. The needs of the Judeans become the needs of the Greeks and the Greeks give. Which of course looks a lot like the one whose name they bear, right? Then Acts 11 begins this norm that we see all throughout the New Testament and the rest of Acts and the epistles. This vast interconnected network of Christians who see themselves as belonging together, as one body in Christ. It doesn't matter where we're from. doesn't matter where Christ has put us. We belong to Jesus and therefore one another. You see Paul doing similar things later on in like books like Corinthians where he's gathering up an offering to care for the brothers and sisters who are afflicted by famine and famines and need and whatever else, everywhere else. And of course, this is the same kind of Network and connectivity the church retains even to this day. You know, one, one of the benefits of belonging to something like the Southern Baptist Convention or the Pillar Network is we get to do things like this. Gather up offerings to help and support brothers and sisters all over the world. But I wonder, for us, I wonder if we can discern a kind of pattern here that's instructive on being the body of Christ. Not just gathering from tribes, tongues, and nations, but being those gathered from all tribes, tongues, and nations, learning to walk in unity as the people of the risen Lord Jesus. I think we can. I think a pattern that looks like this. Grace, gladness, generosity. Grace, 
gladness, generosity. I think this is unity in Christ. In this passage, I think we have it spelled out for us. We see God's grace to pour out his spirit on Jews and Gentiles. Barnabas sees it and he's glad. It's grace that's met with gladness. And then unity behaves in a way that is consistent with that discovery. The Christians at Antioch hear of a need in Jerusalem and respond as brothers to brothers in Christ with self-sacrificial generosity. I wonder if Ridgewood could adopt this same kind of freakish, countercultural love and life together. If we could see ourselves as one new man in Christ. I wonder if Ridgewood could see the grace that the Lord is doing in, in your life, and it can be met with gladness. I'm, I'm thankful for what God's doing in your life, and then it can be met with generosity. And, and, and I want to I meet needs. I want your joys to be my joys. I want your griefs to be my griefs, because you're my brother. You're my sister, because you've been given the same grace that I've been given, and I am here for it. Could Ridgewood adopt this kind of grace, gladness, generosity? And I would even say, if you've been attending for Ridgewood for a season, and You've been kind of on the outskirts. Could this be the Lord's kind of impetus for you to plug in and to actually dive deep and to go from the margins to go join and become meaningfully a part of this community? This week I was reading a book by uh, Francis Schaeffer. Um, Francis Schaeffer founded Labrie in the Swiss Alps, which sounds awesome. It's this like Christian training, apologetics community in the mid-20th century in the Swiss Alps. It's like, again, who... Who wouldn't want to go spend their life in the Swiss Alps? But Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote this book called The Church in the 20th Century. And he was writing about the future of the church. And I was actually really amazed as to how like, prescient it was. Some of the things that he saw coming down the pike have very much been the case. And the point of the book was to, to basically argue that the church, if the church is to survive you know, the modern world and is to survive the advent of the 21st century, there's two things that are absolutely essential for the church. He said the first thing is that the church needs an unwavering commitment to truth. Against moral relativism and against emotivism, we need to be committed to truth. But he said it's got to be an unwavering commitment to truth that is matched with an equally unwavering commitment to an unusual, freakish kind of community. A deep and abiding love for one another. And actually, he used this passage as an example. This is what he said. I'll have it on the screen. He says, there is no use in saying you have community or love for each other if it does not get down into the tough stuff of life. Speaking of Acts 11, he says, here is something striking. The Greeks are sending money to the Jews. The church and its community cut across the difference between Jew and Gentile, not only in theory, but in practice. When those at Antioch heard that the Jews had a material need in a different geographical location in Judea, they gathered together their funds and sent them on a long journey in order to meet the material needs of their brothers. Let me, very, let me say it very strongly again. There is no use talking about love if it is not related to the stuff of life in the area of material possessions and needs. Could we see the burdens, hurts, material needs of our brothers and sisters the challenges of our brothers and sisters and say, those are my challenges too because of the grace we've been given in Christ. James chapter two, James condemns our tendency to look on that and say, oh man, I hate that. I wish you well. I'll pray for you in that. He says, if we don't do anything about that, we know nothing of Christian community. It's, it's, it's about acting and caring and loving. Schaefer goes on to say this. 
He says, don't start a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your homes. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. So I'll just ask again, could Ridgewood adopt the grace, gladness, generosity framework that's given us in this passage? I think what a compelling image of life together this could be. And I think every one of us in this room wants that, don't we? Don't we want to belong to a kind of supernatural, spirit-infused community that looks like sacrificing for one another because of the grace that we share in Jesus? I think if we were to embrace that, it would, it would make sense why we'd be called Christians. Because Christ looked on us and he saw our sin and he said, it's mine. He looked on us and he saw our death and he said, it's mine. He looked on us and he saw our griefs and our sorrows and he said, those are mine too. Let's behave like the Lord Jesus in the way that we love and give and share together as a church family. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what I say to you is that you are looking in on this. You are a third party to this. But we don't want it to be that way. What we hope is that you see a kind of unusual love and even taste it between us, our church family. And what we would say to you is it's because of Jesus. It is the grace that Jesus has shown us that constrains and compels us to be generous and gracious to one another. We'd invite you just to think about what it means to belong to Christ. What it means that Jesus died for our sin. What it means that Jesus has secured us for eternity. And we would love to talk with you. And I'm going to be posted up in the lobby after worship if you'd, love to talk, if you'd like to talk about any of those things. These next few minutes, we're going to have just a moment of reflection, a moment of prayer. And what I would ask you to do is just ask the Holy Spirit how he is directing you to respond in obedience to this passage and the image that's held out for us there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray for a kind of supernatural connection with one another as brothers and sisters, those who have been made one new man in Christ. And I pray not only for a a recognition of the grace that you've given us, the salvation that we share, but a gladness about it, a rejoicing to accompany it. And I pray that also, beyond the walls of Ridgewood, that we would be that way with our sister churches. I thank you for the ministry of Renewal Church of Anderson and Heritage Bible Church and uh, New Covenant Christian Fellowship in Greenville. I thank you for the ministry of Christ Fellowship Cherrydale in Eastside and Northwest. Thank you for the ministry of Greer First Baptist and New Jerusalem Baptist and, and Maple Street, Maple Creek rather, Baptist Church. I thank you that you have placed us in this vast interconnected network of brothers and sisters who testify also to the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would make us a people of gladness and joy in the partnerships that you've given us here internal to Ridgewood and external. And would would we be a church that is generous, that meets burdens and needs with care and generosity?
Lord Jesus, I also pray for any of those who are in attendance who do not know you, who have not tasted the grace that, that we have. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and it would open it to see what, what it is that we're talking about and that they could get a taste of, of what it is that we experience and what it is to know and enjoy and love you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we be obedient to the movement of your spirit this morning. We pray all of this in your name.